Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on podcast, do us a favor, leave us a rating and review it. It kind of helps out the way the podcast algorithm suggests this show to other people and word of mouth and ratings and suggestions are our best friend. Well, longtime listeners have probably heard me tell the story of the training that I sat in with James Carville. This is my favorite James Carville story, where he explained that most people who follow politics think that what you do in politics is you sit around, drink coffee, and talk about strategy. And he air quoted that, strategy. And then he added, and what you're doing is you're sitting there with one thumb in your mouth, the other thumb up your butt, and switching them every half hour and feeling like you're accomplishing something. I have no <laughs> idea what that means. I do not know what that means, but it, it sure brings a rich visual image to mind. So that's a way of saying I look dimly upon the prospect of sitting around and talking about strategy, but I do make exceptions, especially for people like our guest today who really, truly stone cold know what the heck they're talking about. Mark Bergman is a previous guest on this show and longtime listeners will know he is a longtime Democratic strategist, ad maker, consultant. He has worked for some of the top names in Democratic politics, and he really knows what he's talking about. Mark, welcome back. Thank you, Matt. Great to be back. Well, you know, it's great to be back. It's great to sit around and talk about this. And I, you know, a heads up to our listeners, I will tell you when to switch thumbs. But the topic today is, is not particularly wholesome, which is what strategy should Democrats have going into the 2022 midterms with strong gale force winds blowing in our face? Here's a jumping off point. I'm going to out you a little bit. Okay, you great. You texted me a couple of weeks ago with a concern that maybe all of the focus that Democrats have been putting into the January 6th committee is politically unwise, that maybe in the midst of sky high inflation and a a loss of consumer confidence, maybe we should be talking about those things and not so much about January 6th. So let me just put it to you straight. Are Democrats in danger of looking dumb right now by focusing so much on January 6th? Depends on the voter you're talking to. There's a New York Times and Siena poll came out, I think today, on the generic ballot between Democrats and Republicans. And generic ballots are uh, useless in individual races, but helpful in understanding the overall environment. And they kind of said what what I was referring to, which is among college-educated voters, January 6th is great. It works. Uh, Abortion, a woman's right to choose, that works. But we're really sucking wind with non-college-educated voters on the economy. And it's not just non-college educated white voters. It is a diverse coalition of people who did not go to college, 
who feel like the Democratic Party is not addressing the economic concerns. And that's like not just a warning flag in this cycle, that's a warning flag for the next decade for us. If we continue to hemorrhage non-college educated voters at the level we're hemorrhaging them, we are a permanent minority party. Permanent. You know, that was the message of our recent guest, Elaine K. Mark, who is well known in Democratic insider circles, not as well known to the broader public, although hopefully a little bit better after being on our show. I mean, she's a frequent guest on, on major media. And she, 30 years ago, wrote an article called The Politics of Evasion about how Democrats told themselves kind of happy stories about what voters thought and how much they really agreed with us and how great we're, we're doing. And it was, it was kind of, it, it was a lot of happy nonsense. And now she's updated it and she's calling it the new politics of evasion. And it's kind of where we're at. And her core point is what you just said, which is we're bleeding non-college educated voters not just white voters, although predominantly white voters, especially in those Rust Belt states, also in some of the emerging Sun Belt swing states like Arizona. And there's, we, there's just not enough voters who are core, who definitely agree with us to make up the difference. It, it does seem like, let me ask you this, it does seem like both parties have gotten into a little bit of a trap in the last four or five years, we've sort of overlearned the lesson of the disappearing swing voter. We mm -hmm. have told ourselves, well, look, you know, there's only six to nine percent of the electorate that's true swing voters. And I'm going to define that as meaning you might vote for a Republican and a Democrat in the same election, or you might vote for Republicans in one election and then switch to Democrats in the very next election. Those kinds of voters are shrinking. So the dominant strategy now is just to turn out the people who are already with you, but might not show up to vote. It's more efficient. It's a better use of your time and money to do that. It feels like we've kind of fallen into that trap. And so by focusing on January 6th and abortion and you know issues that appeal to our core of college educated voters and you know base uh, black voters, especially black women, that's good. It might help with turnout, but we're, we've sort of, we're not doing anything to expand the people who will be with us in November. It's somewhat, somewhat, I'm not, I think the jury's still out on the choice issue. Mm. And, you know, clearly that moves college educated women in a very big way, clearly moves college educated men. The challenge you have, though, and non-college educated women, I, I, I don't know where non-college educated men are here, but they agree with our position on choice. The majority of the country agrees with it. The problem we have among those non-college educated voters, people who community college, apprenticeships, going like coming out of high school, there used to be economic opportunity for them. Mm. The Democratic Party was mainly responsible for that. Um, like 30, 30 to 50 years ago. And right now, there is no op opportunity for them. If, you're, if you graduate high school today in America, your choices are go to college, go to the military, or go pack up packages in an Amazon warehouse or work a minimum wage job. Like that's the problem in America. They can't, if, if you're not coming out of school and putting yourself in debt, 
to go to college, there is no opportunity for you economically. And they're turning to the snake oil that the Republicans are selling them, that it's someone else's fault, that that's their economic life. And yeah. they're turning to this snake oil of Fox News of blaming someone else. The Democratic Party is not giving them an option, an economic alternative. They agree with us on all these other issues, but they need, the Democratic Party needs an economic message. Can you tell me what it is? I couldn't. We need well, a- <laughs> I, I could tell you, but it would take a long time. And it's an yeah. ironclad rule of politics that less is more. And yeah. the fewer words, I'd love to come up with a math proposition for this that like shows the number of words you use decreases your effectiveness for each word you add. Yeah, but the Republican message is, I'm going to return more of your money. And that means you'll have more money to spend on the things you need. Like, that's pretty simple. Yeah. <laughs> like whether it's like they're also going to be returning rich people's money at the higher clip, but that doesn't permeate down to the average person. So we need a message of like, what are you going to get economically if you're a Democrat? And if you look at the polls, I'm not saying this is all true, but like the last two big economic catastrophes of the millennials generation, the Xers generation are the 2008 financial collapse and the post and the inflation crisis post-pandemic. Both times the Democratic Party has been in charge, and both times the Democratic Party has not addressed those economic crises appropriately in the view of the voter. Well, and- that's what's really that that's what's really got to frustrate the heck out of Democrats, Me which too. is yeah. because the the story the the story you just told is true, although it admits a itsy bitsy teeny tiny detail, which is. The crisis was created under Republicans watch. And then it was like, hey, we're going to peace out on all this. You know, you bring in the Democrats to clean it up. And guess what? There's no magic wand here. So the 2008, you know, you and I were working on Capitol Hill. The 2008 financial crisis was a long time in the making. A lot of it was caused by Alan Greenspan. A lot of it was caused by policy under George W. Bush. So you have... You have this blow up, you bring in Barack Obama, and then you and I had to work politically through the 2010 cycle, which was awful because people, voters were saying to us, I'm extremely unhappy, things still suck, and you haven't fixed it yet, so we're really angry, okay? And now flash forward to 2022. Why did we have the pandemic, such a bad experience with the pandemic and such such a bad economic experience initially. Well, the economic experience was tied to the pandemic experience. The economic experience was actually not Donald Trump's fault. It really wasn't. And the fact that bipartisan majorities in Congress sent out $4 trillion while Donald Trump was president was the reason that we fared better economically than all of our peers in other countries around the world. The US bounced back faster and stronger than other countries. And by the way, Inflation is also soaring around the world. So don't tell me, Twitter, that this is Joe Biden's fault somehow. Okay, yeah, Joe Biden is responsible for inflation in Germany. Yeah, whatever. But I I understand where voters are coming from when they say, I I don't really care. Like, it's happening while Joe Biden is. Actually, can I turn that into a question to you? This This is a hobby horse that I've been riding for a while now. You are a consultant. You're working with candidates right now. You're in those rooms where people are, are switching thumbs and you're trying to look at polling and, and come up with a strategy. To what extent, 
these days, are you looking at presidential approval rating as a meaningful metric that changes what you do or where you think you stand? Because I have a contention to make to you, and you can tell me if I'm full of it. I think it matters way less than it did 10 or maybe even five years ago. I think when people rate Joe Biden, he, his presidential approval rating is the lowest. It, it, you know, it's, it's one of the lowest on record. It is lower than Donald Trump at this point in his administration. When people say that, I don't think they're saying we disapprove of Joe Biden's job. I think what they're saying is I am unhappy. And I agree with them. I understand why they're unhappy. But how useful is that politically to you? Is it, is it, is it less useful of a metric or am I, am I way off base? Uh, it's useful. Um, is it uh, determinant as the way it used to be? No. Um, most presidents, like the problem is it's all partisan. It's driven by partisanship in a way that it never used to. Um, it used to be that there would be like, you could get 30% of the opposite party to approve of your job. Now you can get maybe 2%. So it's driven heavily by partisanship. Um, and that's not entirely useful. What's useful is among like these moderate independent swing voters, like where does he stand among them? His overall job approval is useless. Like, of course, Republicans disapprove of him. You're not going to get Republican votes in an election. It's all partisanship. Um, so yeah, that, that would be my take. I was like, it's substantially less useful than it was before. You know, a president is never going to get into the 60s ever again in this country. It's just not possible until maybe the boomers die off. Maybe then like we could like reset our politics. But until you get a generational shift where there's more cohesion in the population, you're just never going to see a president be as popular again. It's just not going to happen. So let me go back to something you said a moment ago, you kind of invoked the Great Recession. And then yeah. I invoked our 2010 experience. Yeah, fun experience. Which, which, yeah, which, which was awesome. By the way, if people want to hear a little bit more about Mark Bergman's 2020, uh, 2010 experience, listen to our recent interview with Mark Putnam on, on Beyond Politics. But the problem we had in 2010 was things were getting better. The, the policies that the Democratic-controlled Congress and then-President Barack Obama, those policies that they had enacted were actually good. They were the right policies, and they were working. They just weren't working fast enough. And so Democratic candidates were left in a position where we were trying to sell something that voters just didn't believe. And we were left basically saying to them, who are you going to believe, us or your lion eyes? You know, we're trying to say things are getting better and we're stuck in this paradox of we seem if we try and say things are improving or things are good, then we seem massively out of touch. But if we buy into the everything is terrible paradigm, then we're, we're just ratifying the Republicans message. It was it was an awful position to be in. That said. Let me ask you about this time around, because you were just saying, all right, look, you know, we're focused on January 6th. The voters we need to get are focused on the economy. What would be so wrong with an approach that basically said, we're in that paradox now where there's no good message that we can really give about the economy. 
And it just came out as we record this that June inflation was the highest on record, 9.1%. Very, very high. But it's a lagging indicator. And all of the metrics are now telling us it looks like, I mean, gas, real gas prices have been coming down in recent weeks. Things are trending in the right direction. So what would be wrong about an approach that said, look, right now, let's talk about January 6th, because that's a better topic to talk about than all the other stuff going on with inflation. And as conditions hopefully improve, post-Labor Day, we're going to have a story to tell about a really strong jobs market, really strong wage growth, and the fact that things are getting better. Things are looking up and we've turned a corner. What do you think about an approach like that? I don't think it's a bad approach if it happens. I think the problem you've got yeah. is- like, Great, yeah. I think, Best case scenarios are good. I think the difference between now and 2010 was economic conditions were improving because the cha- the economic challenge then was jobs and wage growth and you know the labor market had collapsed. The housing market had collapsed. This is very different. This is like an overheated economy. Prices are too high. And you have the Fed tightening the screws on the economy. And we've yet to see a problem in the housing market. You looked at any economist. And listen, Larry Summers, you know, you say what you want about his personality. He has been right about all of this from start to finish. And he said there is no soft landing for this economy. I think like the economic conditions are not going to necessarily improve. What I would contend Democrats need to do, like there's a there's a campaign strategy, which is like you like you have to absolutely tear your opponent apart. Like there is no choice as a Democrat running for office. Like you can tell a compelling message, but like there is like you may not be happy with where the economy is, but you really want to turn the keys over to these clowns. Like that is got to be part of the message. And then the other part of the message has got to be like, we know that you're hurting and we're actually going to do something to make it better. And just ignoring the economy and ignoring that like it costs $10 to get a pound of chicken thighs is like, like that is like people that don't earn more than $40,000 a year, like going to the grocery store and not being able to get meat for their kids. Like that's embarrassing for them. It's embarrassing for their country. And like, you have our leaders who are like divorced from that reality in their mind. And our leaders need to show some friggin' empathy to the way people are living and feeling right now. And that is the disconnect. It's not just the policy. It's the like, holy smokes, you have to go fill up your tank. It's a hundred bucks and you can't get like food for your kids and you can't make it all work on your salary because your wages aren't growing quick enough. Like there is like some true, like, and the, the president is giving speeches, but that's not what the people want. They're like, what are you like? It's not. I'll go back to a historical example. The New Deal did not improve the economy. The president created an environment where people felt like what he was doing was trying to make their life better. The, the, what improved the economy was World War II. So like presidential leadership Democratic leadership is also mental and creating a mental, creating mental optimism in the country, even when things are bad. And that is what we're failing at. And even if it's not accomplishing big things, 
We need to be talking about big things that we're going to do. And yet, at the same time, sort of our DNA over the last two years has been to talk about those big things that we're going to do in a very particular kind of progressive economic policy way that may not be what the moment demands. Mark, you were just saying that we essentially need to get caught trying as a party. And this is about creating a feeling that at least Democrats are on your side, maybe a little bit better than that, that things are going in the right direction. Voters, I think, don't care if ultimately all of this you know, came from good policies and, and even good intentions. All they care about is it doesn't feel good right now. And so we've got to restore that kind of positive feeling or at least a positive association with what the Democratic Party is doing. Now, I was just noting that the, 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 the approach has been, at least the messaging has been, we need, I'm going to air quote this, big, bold, progressive policies. And a lot of the economic agenda discussion has been dominated by things like student loan debt relief and paying more for childcare, childcare tax credits, um, you know, and other kind of progressive policies. In the in the reconciliation bill, there was $400 billion for long-term care, things like that, that may be economically good ideas. But I wonder if they're the right kinds of messages to be putting forward now. Do they come off to voters like you're just doing a lot of handouts and that your tax policy is punishing successful people? Some of that, but also, you know, one thing you see in a lot of the research that's going on right now is voters, whether it's rightfully or wrongly, say that what the government did in COVID caused the inflation crisis. They believe that. They think that they gave out too much money. You know, even the child tax credit, which we've perceived was going to be immensely popular. Voters came back and said, who's paying for this? Where's all this money coming from? The problem with democratic messaging is it um, is all about giving things, like giving money to people. That is our economic message. Just give money to you uh, in, through programs. And, you know, you look at the New Deal and, you know, what came, and I think the two biggest things that fueled the Democratic Party for the, for, you know, from Franklin Roosevelt through Harry Truman was the New Deal, which was getting jobs for people. And that was a big piece of the New Deal beyond just the relief and having a safety net was jobs. Uh, and the second thing was the GI Bill, where you had all these people returning home from World War II who could then go to college and get into the middle class. Just like if you look at that message, the messaging behind those policies, it was all work, work, work to earn a living to be able to support your family, which is what people want, and go to college and earn something. I, I earned the GI Bill because I served in World War II. And that propelled the middle class. The American, the, the problem is the American psyche is we want to work to achieve something. We don't want things handed to us. And I think the Democrats often struggle in thinking that just giving these things to people is a matter of equity and fairness. And it's true. But if you look at people, they want to work to earn it. So our policies should be geared towards how can you make work pay more? Like it's, you know, I think about it, it's like if you serve the public, you should get your student loans forgiven, which is currently the law, but we should do more of it. You know, you talk about childcare. It's like 
in my view, like as someone with little kids, like uh, affordable childcare would be great. I would just like available childcare. There are not enough people to actually take care of children in this country right now because people don't want to do the work. Like, what are we doing to get more people into the field of childcare, which would then spur jobs and give people opportunity? Like, what we're trying to do is Democrats need to be about creating opportunity for people on the bottom who want to work for, to achieve that. And I think if we are, if that was our economic message, then I think we would succeed a little more. Uh, I also think, like, don't discount the lingering anger from the shutdowns during COVID that's going on and how angry people are and perceive that the Democrats took joy in shutting the country down. Like, it felt like that was like the like moment of resistance against Trump is like, if you don't shut the country down and send the kids home for like a month at a time, like that was like that was unpatriotic and like you were pro-Trump. Like there, that had like lasting consequences for people and people are still feeling it a year later. Mm. And I think Democrats are losing the public education fight in a way that we shouldn't. Um, we just like our party needs to be thinking about what led to the success of our party and defined us among working voters, like working class people, people who are like built the middle class of this country were Democrats. Like they were Democrats. And the reason why they were Democrats was because the Democratic Party gave them an opportunity if they were willing to work for it. And right now that doesn't seem to be the message. And yet it does seem one of Elaine K. Mark, I was referring to her earlier and her, her article, her paper, uh, the politics of evasion and then the new politics of evasion, the version for the 2020s that we're living through right now. One of her core points is we tend to think that economics trumps culture and it, it doesn't. Um, and so that leads to two problems. One is what you just said, which is our version of economics tends to fall in the progressive direction, which is the solution to a problem is we will create a program and hand out some cash. And that's the way we're seen, right? The the other version of it- That's is, not just seen, that's real. That's what we do. Okay, that's all right, I'll cop to that. There's, there's a kernel of truth. You're right to be suspicious, baby. But, but, but in addition to that, I do think Republicans have been successful in painting Democrats as- the party of wokeness. Now we have stepped on some rakes as a party. <laughs> yeah. in that regard. Yes. Right. And like, you know, what's so crazy about all of it is we went through a democratic presidential nomination process in 2019 into 2020, where we very specifically chose the least progressive candidate we could like the most anodyne old, old school candidate we had who was not a member of the woke progressive wing, either economically or culturally. And we know that the majority of Democrats continue to define themselves as moderate or conservative, but yeah. somehow we have to own the whole defund the police, show me your pronouns side of the party. And however much social justice there may be, and I'm not dismissing this, yeah. I mean, there is, I, I'm, I'm fine with telling people my pronouns. Like, I, I don't want to offend people or like, you know, dump on anyone's identity. At the same time, see that that is a, a, a political problem. So let me ask you the, the cultural version of this. You were saying we need a core branding and economic message that kind of goes back to our roots about 
enabling work, enabling people's own success and pathway to and through the middle class. What about on the cultural side? Is there, because that's one of the major reasons we're losing these non-college educated Midwest voters is these cultural issues. And we're seen as a party of coastal arugula eating, latte sipping elites who are totally out of touch with the real life experience of people in these places. Can we fix that? Yes. I think because we're the party of empathy um, that we can start to see people that may not vote for us as human beings again, and that may not share our cultural values, that they're still good human beings. And I think that is what we need to do more of as a party is, you know, I look at, you know, how we got, because when you and I started in this business, it's like 2000, like 2000, 2002, you, you're older than me, but. Um, yeah, thanks for reminding me. Yeah, exactly. But remember what gay marriage was back then? Oh, yeah. Right, right. Remember what a cultural dividing rod that was. And today it's settled issue. Like even among the most crazy Republicans, gay marriage, being gay, it's okay. And the, I think the way that happened, that moved so quickly was, and it didn't, it like 2000 years before that didn't move so fast at all. But it right. moved because people started seeing people who were gay and they started coming out and they started seeing people as gay as just their friend. They're like, there's nothing wrong with this guy being gay. His marriage doesn't affect my marriage. Like the second we start to see each other as human beings again and not the other, we start to like succeed. And that's on us as Democrats is we have to look at people who are struggling in those Rust Belt states and those people who are turning to anger and division and start to see the, and see like what they're going through, like what their lives are like, like as opposed to shaming them because they don't share our cultural values right now. That's the problem. That's why we're losing them because we don't appear to show any empathy towards them or their economic situation or the fact that their kids can't own a home and that they got ravaged by the opioid crisis. Like, where are we? Like that our free trade policies destroyed their communities. And now their best opportunity is working in an Amazon warehouse while we take Amazon donations. Like that's the problem. We're missing the empathetic nature of what we need to do to get these voters back. If we combination, we retool our economic message and start seeing them as real people. Like this is what Pete Buttigieg says all the time. It's like, just start seeing people as people. If you do that, people are going to respond to you eventually. It may not it may not happen in one election cycle or two election cycles, but I think the real great divide in this country is a lack of empathy for one another. And like you can almost see it like in this exchange that Josh Hawley had with a professor where they were just like throwing insults at each other. Um, you know, she called him transphobic, which he probably is. He called her a woke professor who doesn't take, you know, any criticism. It's just like it was just like horrible moment that just showed what our politics is, as opposed to Holly trying to understand that world of body dysmorphia and understand what it's like to feel like the gender you were born into is not the gender you feel you are and what pain that must cause a person. Like he didn't try to understand. He was just trying to make a point to get on Fox News and raise some money. And she didn't like, maybe she, he earned that. She just fired right back at him. And it's just like, we need a moment in this country where even if we disagree on something that we to our core believe is true, we have to see the other side. 
And we have to see people not just as an enemy, but as a fellow American. And I, that's, yeah. on our, that's on us as a party. Just as much as it's on them, they're never going to do it because their leaders are taking them down a very dangerous road of, and I can't fix that as a Democrat. What I can fix is what the Democratic Party believes. And that's what I'm working towards. That's what all of us work towards. Right, and I right. think if we can do that, we can regain the majority of this country back as opposed to be fighting over, you know, the, the these base wars. Like we got to start like that's the urgent need of our parties to bring our country back. And that's why Barack Obama became a successful leader was he's like, we're not red states, we're blue states, we're the United States. And we need that again out of the Democratic Party. What's so difficult it sounds great the way you say it. And it so aligns with, I mean, maybe my, the favorite article that I ever wrote was insufferables versus deplorables. And my point was, <laughs> we can't defeat deplorables by being insufferables. And I define deplorables as people who are beyond any growth in empathy, beyond any growth in understanding of other people. There are people out there who will never have any of that evolution that you just talked about in understanding transgender people, understanding people who are different than them. But I think the vast majority of Americans are quite capable of that and of having some growth of empathy for other people. And we are not going to defeat the cadre of MAGA deplorables that does exist in this country. That's right. If we are absolutely insufferable toward everyone by looking down our noses at them and basically saying, you are a bigot and you're so ignorant that you don't even realize how disgusting you are. But good news, I'm here to help you. I yes. can fix you. You're welcome. Well, we sound like such jerks when we functionally do that. I think that the, the problem here, and I'm not looking to blame Storm and put the blame anywhere outside of ourselves. If we're insufferable, the problem is us. We need to look at the man in the mirror, but or the woman in the mirror or whatever. But I do think that people respond to incentives. And a major change that we've seen since Barack Obama ran that 2008 campaign, no red America, blue America, only a United States of America, hope and change, is social media. The, the, the dominant way we communicate with one another politically and the dominant way that we get our news and the dominant way that we're filtering the world. And people respond to incentives. And the incentives are call out culture, to call out and get likes and shares and rewarded online for essentially being insufferable to people and essentially dismissing and showing no empathy and not you know taking a, a pause to say, all right, I don't like the way you just said something, but I'm going to I'm going to understand that you probably at your core, you're 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 a good person. And the whole communications medium that we work through is not set up around that. It incentivizes the opposite. And that's a problem that I find particularly intractable. So this is me taking an awesome thing you just said about, look, there's a way we can do this and it's on us and we have the power to do it. And I'm just crapping all over it and saying, oh, there's so much in our way. Let me, let me ask you this. It seems to me like what's happened over the last year is that as economic and political conditions have gotten worse for Democrats, and talk about responding to incentives. As a party, our politics, and actually in America, our politics has now become a contest heading into the midterms of 
trying to claim essentially the other party is extreme. We're at least on your side. And there are different versions of it for for Democrats. Our mutual friend, Cliff Schechter, another Democratic strategist who, you know, did some of the creative ads for Joe Biden last time, his version of it, he just tweeted it. His message version is Republicans think your 10 year old daughter must be forced to birth her rapist child with parental rights for her rapist. Radicalized and violently ill high school kids must have unfettered access to AR-15s and a bloody GOP inspired coup was tourism. The Republican version of that is woke Democrats think BLM riots were peaceful, rampant crime across America is okay, and we should defund the police, and that endlessly talking about Donald Trump is more important to you than the fact that you can't afford their disastrous high prices for gas and food. Is that basically the battlefield that we've lurched ourselves into? A version of they're extreme, we're at least on your side. Yeah, that is that is the battlefield. But I, you know, I, I, most people who've seen this, po- watch this podcast or listen to it, seen the movie Lincoln. And I I think about that line where he said, can we just stop this bleeding? And I think that's where the American people, the vast majority of the American people hear both those messages. And they're like, God, but chicken costs $10, you know, a pound. Like, what the hell are you guys talking about? And I just feel like it's all the Democratic Party has to respond, has to do exactly what we just said. These guys are extreme. They're going to force all this on you. And we've also got to say, we're going to make your lives better, right? Like these guys don't care about you and chicken and like how you're going to feed your family. They, they care about advancing this extreme agenda. Like we're trying. This country is divided. I think the American people, and you look at this in governor's races across the country, I'm working in a few, that they give Democratic governors a hell of a lot more credit than they give Joe Biden because they mm-hmm. see Democratic governors trying to improve lives. And that is the model for the Democratic Party. I listen, if Joe Biden doesn't run, that's his choice. My opinion is our best bet is a Democratic governor somewhere because Democratic governors have delivered over the last four years, eight years. Democratic governors know how to make people's lives better. People are forgiving. They don't want all the problems solved. They just want to know that you're doing something to try. And that's what the American people are looking for. They're looking for leadership who is not in this ideological like jello mold that we've created for both sides, but her like, how can I solve problems? How can I improve lives? This is about public service. And can you see empathy for people? And that's what Democratic governors do every day. That's what Democratic mayors do every day. Like that's where the leadership of the party needs to start bubbling up from. And you saw that, like, again, you saw that in the eighties after we got shellacked by Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush it was Democratic governors that got together and said, hey, we're going to redefine the Democratic Party. And that's what brought us Bill Clinton and got us you know, back into the White House. Like it is going to be a new generation of Democratic leaders outside of Washington, in my view, who are going to bring us back from the abyss. Um, that's not to say that maybe Kamala Harris could do it. I don't know. Um, but I if Joe Biden chose not to run again, but I believe that that's what the American people are looking for. They're looking for problem solvers. You know, I was in a focus group for uh, Ralph Northam in 2017. And this was when I knew we were going to win the election, despite what everyone was saying, we were blowing it, was we we had a bunch of undecided voters in Chesterfield County, a suburban area outside of Richmond. And we showed them Northam and we showed them Ed Gillespie. And what they said about Ralph was, he seems like a decent man who actually cares. And that... 
was like, okay, we're going to win. Because that's what voters are looking for in this, this time of like everyone screaming at each other. They're looking for decency, for someone who's trying. And I think why they, they're souring on the president is they don't think he's trying. They know he's a decent man, but they think he's ineffective. That's what's so crazy about all this is that that was Joe Biden's primary appeal, no pun intended, in yeah. 2019 and 2020, was that people got his fundamental decency and his call to, you know, restore the soul of the nation. Like, you know, people you work with at your firm kind of helped him come up with that. And that yes. that's what he was all about, that he was a Scranton guy and that he empathized and he really cared. And it does seem we've lost the strength. It's so interesting that you say, you know, you kind of draw an analogy. I was talking about Elaine Kmart. She was one of the kind of intellectual architects behind what was called the, the third way new Democrat model in the late 80s and early 90s that eventually led to Bill Clinton and these outsider Democratic governors kind of taking the lead in the Democratic Party. The version of it that's been in the media is maybe there's room for a center left, center right coalition. Now, I take a dim view of this because third parties have never been successful in America, but you're giving a different version of that, which is maybe in a long-term sense, if Democrats do take a shellacking in 2022, which we might, maybe in a long-term sense, it's kind of what we need. Maybe we need to face the music and finally come around to it's like the Simpsons line, the politics of failure have failed. And yeah. we, we need we need to kind of have a new rethinking like we did in the late 80s of, all right, you know, let's get back to the core. And we, we need to get back to empathizing, identifying with the voters that we need to get and not being so highfalutin, super progressive, Washington and coastal elite focused. And maybe it's 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 going to be a painful process and, and maybe it's just what we need. It's a combination of that and also understanding that our viewpoint when you and I were on the Hill was that the country's diversifying, Republicans are screwed, they're a whites only party, they'll never get anywhere. And that's been in that that belief at the turn of the century is wildly incorrect because the growing the growing diversification of America is among Latinos, South Asians, the Asian community, and they are acting like immigrants and not like just a minority group. And, you know, you, you today you don't say, well, the Italians vote this way, the Irish vote this way, the Jews vote. So those are all categories as white now. And right. I think you're going to start to see that in that the mult and assimilation inside those communities. They're going to stop voting like minority blocks. And that's a problem for the Democrat. And you're seeing it in states like the Sunbelt states like Arizona, Texas, Florida, Latino vote. Barack Obama won the state of Florida in 2012 with 60% of Latino vote. We haven't touched 60% of Latino vote in Florida like since 2012, not even close. We can't just say we're the party of diversity, they're the party of whites. Like that doesn't work anymore. We've got to be the party of the people on the bottom who need a hand up, who need, who want to work their way into the middle class. Like we need to be that party and we can't see these voters to the snake oil that the Republican Party is selling them. It's someone else's fault that they're on the bottom. It's the woke Democratic liberal elites who don't care about you. That's why you're that's why you don't have enough money to feed your family. Like that's what's being sold. That's like George Wallace crap. 
And they are, and voters are buying it in the absence of a credible message and a credible alternative. Like that is what I'm, that is the fear for me of the country until we do that. Like until we shift and start talking to people in a way that they will listen to us, they're going to buy the snake oil. Well, either we limit the damage in 2022 and that would be good. That would be a good outcome. That would be be important for democracy and for saving the country. Or we take an absolute beating and maybe that helps us to get onto a better, stronger, long-term course. I hope one of those two things happens. In the meantime, I have to tell our listeners it is time to switch thumbs and it is time for us to sign off. Mark Bergman, thanks so much for all of those insights. Thanks, Matt.